Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, hello. This is Colin. Welcome to the news. I'm uh, here uh, in my home studio. Declan the dog is asleep on the floor. Let's hope he stays asleep. Uh, and uh, let's hope you stay awake. Uh, I think you will. I think we have a pretty interesting show ahead of us because, you know, it'll be a while before filmmakers can make movies about the pandemic we're living through. It'll be a while before, you know, a few definitive novels come out that are actually about this. Um, but music, music can often respond pretty quickly to things. Uh, and we're going to talk about that. And then it's also the case that some music that is made before a crisis seems ready-made for the crisis, almost as if the artist kind of had some inkling, some whisper on the wind. Um, I've talked before about how after 9-11, it seemed as though you too, with all that you leave behind, it's like someone told them, make make something that people can listen to when after something terrible and terrifying has happened. Uh, that may have happened this time around, too. So we have terrific guests to talk about this. Um, we're going to talk at the, uh, near, the, near the end of the show about a different kind of musical artist, or is he? Weird Al Yankovic, and a terrific, really interesting Sam Anderson profile of him uh, in the New York Times Magazine. But before that, yeah, we're going to talk about uh, music that's come out from Bon Iver, uh, from Nora Jones, uh, from uh, maybe an artist or two that you are less familiar with. Uh, and uh, we're also going to talk very specifically about uh, an album uh, by Fiona Apple, which was years in the making, but somehow or other seems very ready to speak to us right now. Uh, and to do all that, uh, we have uh, an exciting guest lineup. Rebecca Castellani is a music writer for the Red Hook Star Review, very much a regular on the nose. And then a guy who used to be on our show a lot, and then he moved to Spain. Uh, Eric Danton is a reporter and critic. He was rock critic at the Hartford Current for a decade. Uh, I was a rock critic at the Hartford Current for several years, unlike uh, me. Eric was really good at it and still is really good at it. Uh, he joins us by Skype from Madrid. Uh, so we've got an international nose going. So, I mean, Eric, I know this is a 30-minute conversation that we might need to have on another show, but just, you know, in, in one or two sentences, how are you? Uh, we're good. Uh, we've been inside a lot. Um, my kids haven't stepped out the door in five weeks, I think. We can go out with them for a little while on Sunday, finally, for the first time in a really long time. But we're healthy. Uh, we're mostly sane. We're hanging in. <laughs> okay. And Rebecca, how are you today? I'm very well, thanks. Hanging in there. It's, so, you know, an introvert's paradise these days. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, some of us are suffering less than other people. So, you know, I think it's sort of true also that there are cer certain artists that who are kind of like stopped clocks. They're just going to be right in situations like this. Uh, uh, Alanis Morissette has a song called Diagnosis. I don't think it was written for this, but, you know, she would have a song called Diagnosis. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and Neil Young has a new song called Shut It Down 2020, uh, which, you know, Neil Young is always roaring about some calamities. So how can he be wrong this time? But 
Let's he probably start. wrote it this morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it almost sounds a little bit that way. But uh, no, I think it's more about climate change. But that's what I mean by about being, uh, you know, a stop clock being right. Because there's going to be something anyway that's going to occasion this. So we're going to start with a, a Wisconsin band called Bon Iver. Uh, it has taken a great uh, deal of time, Eric, and a lot of work by physicists to establish that this is a band and not a person. <laughs> uh, uh, Eric, maybe do you want to set this up in any particular way? prepare maybe some of our listeners don't even know who i'm talking about sure bonnie ver um came to prominence a decade ago maybe with uh, an album called for emma forever ago and at that point it was a band but it was one guy justin vernon and he recorded this album at his dad's cabin in the woods of wisconsin after a breakup while recovering from mono too or something like that maybe it was it was one of those <laughs> dire whisper folk albums there was, there was some sorry disease for laughing component. at that. <laughs> <laughs> there was a disease component of it. Yeah. Um, and it was one of those dire whisper folk albums that was popular around then with these really gut-wrenching songs and a lot of acoustic guitars. And since then, Bon Iver has expanded into broader soundscapes. And he's, he's pals with Kanye West. He contributed to a couple of Kanye albums. He was on the Watch the Throne record that Kanye and Jay-Z did. And he's adapted some of those digital technology things he's used auto-tune on his voice on recent records um there are a lot of different instruments now instead of just acoustic guitars and murmury double-tracked vocals he's become a much bigger deal over the past decade for sure all right so let's play a little bit this is uh uh let's see i hope i get the letters in the right sequence p l i f yes p d l i f since stands for please don't live in fear let's hear a little bit of this and then we'll get rebecca and eric to say more about it So I apologize for fading, but uh, we don't have time to play all these songs for you in their entirety. So, um, Rebecca, at first blush anyway, sounds a lot like a Bon Iver song to me. Yeah, no, for sure. But I do think that there's more of like this sort of jazzy, synthy quality to it, kind of like what Eric was describing that is you know newer for those that have kind of only heard For Emma Forever Ago. It certainly does feel like a sonic departure from that. And it, you know, we'll talk about this with the Fiona Apple album, but the sounds do seem to also kind of mimic the chaos of the current moment. You've got this like quick shift from soft and hard, frantic and calm. And I do think that it's very intentional sonically in the way he's trying to evoke like this very confused, disparate time we're living in. But right. it still this, sounds a lot like Bon Iver. Yeah, it just still sounds, sounds a lot. So, uh, and Eric, yeah, this one is, you should pardon the expression, right on the nose. There isn't any question about what he's talking about. None. I, this seems like it was written in direct response to the current situation. Um, sonically, it feels to me a lot like a continuation of what he was doing on the record that came out last year, which I think is called I, I, lowercase I, comma, lowercase I. Um, yeah. Hipster. Hipsters, man. Uh, hipsters. This, this feels very much of a piece with that. Um, the, one th the one thing I have about songs like this is 
it's I think this was for charity. It's nice that he is doing it and responding, but songs that are sort of written for specific circumstances like this one sometimes feel forced. And this one feels a little forced to me. Yeah, I think that that would probably be the problem. Uh, you wonder what kind of staying power uh, this song has, whether anybody will be listening to it. Of course, we may have coronavirus around for a long time. So, uh, yeah, right. Will it so, last longer than the virus or will yeah. it not? Well, at a certain point, I mean, I started a coronavirus playlist to get ready for this show. I don't know if I'm going to still be listening to that playlist in two years. I kind of hope not. Um, all right. So let's go from there to Bob Dylan. Now, nobody ever knows why Bob Dylan does anything that he does <laughs> or if he is ever going to do it. <laughs> Anything, or I mean, there just aren't any questions about Bob Dylan that you can reliably answer. Uh, he's got uh, some new singles coming out right now. We're going to play uh, the one that's a little bit more compact, and uh, it's kind of catchy too. It's called "I Contain Multitudes." Let's hear a little bit, Cat. Today and tomorrow. Yesterday too The flowers are dying Like all things do Follow me close I'm going to Bali and Ali I'll lose my mind If you don't come with me I fuss with my hair And I fight blood feuds I contain multitudes Got a telltale heart, like Mr. Poe. So um, this is like the third time this song has been played on my show since it was released for complicated reasons. So Rebecca, right away we should say there's a a literary uh, allusion that's uh, openly being made here. And good scholar that you are, you you spotted it right away. Yes, well, I mean, this the title I Contain Multitudes comes from Walt Whitman's Song of Myself, and there's it's rife the whole song with different allusions. He talks about William Blake, he talks about Edgar Allan Poe, and my theory with both this song and Murder Most Foul is that Bob Dylan is sort of revisiting um, some of his high watermarks in his early career. So to... Dylan loves his literary and historical allusions. I don't think you see that any more obviously than on the track Desolation Row, which is on Highway 61 Revisited, where he just throws every illusion in his brain that has informed his career at the kit at the wall and sees what sticks. And I think that there's a similarity to this. I, I want to think that that opening line about the flowers are dying like all things do is a hearkening of Eliot's April is the Cruelest Month. Dylan was uh, very aware of T.S. Eliot. He was very inspired by Eliot's use of persona. I think it, I wrote my undergraduate thesis arguing that uh, Dylan's exposure to Eliot is the reason why Dylan became like this king of using masks and persona to differentiate Bob Dylan, the artistic mouthpiece from Robert Zimmerman, the artist. And I think that he's kind of, you know, at this later point in his career, revisiting some of these themes. In the other track that he's released, Murder Most Foul, uh, that it deals with the Kennedy assassination. And Kennedy was assassinated the same year that the freewheeling Bob Dylan came out, which was Bob Dylan's first real album of original songs. His first album, Bob Dylan, was almost all covers. There's only two originals. So the freewheeling Bob Dylan was really the world's introduction to who Bob Dylan wanted to be. And that did come out the same year of the Kennedy assassination. Obviously, the world was in turmoil and transition. So I think he's kind of, you know, we're in another period of turmoil and transition. I think it's the perfect time for him to be kind of revisiting some of these themes from his early career. 
I would parenthetically point out that uh, Brian Wilson has always insisted that the warmth of the sun is a response to the Kennedy assassination, although it's almost impossible to figure out how that would be the case. But uh, as is so often the case with things that Brian Wilson says. So, yeah, I, you know, Eric, you know, the, it's so tempting to read into Dylan, you know, and I Contain Multitudes is also the title of a book by Ed Young about the biome, microbiomes, the, the microbiomes. So, you know, you. <laughs> Right now, you kind of don't want to contain certain multitudes. I still feel, I think Rebecca is on the right track, that this is a guy who did get the Nobel Prize for Literature, and now he's kind of, you know, he's paddling around in those waters. That, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with that at all. That sounds right to me. What I love about both these songs that he has released is that there is no indication whatsoever when he wrote or recorded them. No, uh, on, you're on, so on right. YouTube. Yeah, on YouTube or, or wherever he posted it, uh, Murder Most Foul, he says, here's a song we wrote a while back, or we did a while <laughs> back. And, you know, that could be three weeks ago. He could have done it in 1980. You just have no yeah. idea. And it's part of that amazing myth-making ability that he has shown for 60 years. I mean, however long he's been doing it. Um, they do fit the times, both these songs, in their way. You know, Murder Most Foul came out a month ago, uh, more or less, and... There was something really strangely comforting about sitting there for almost 17 minutes and listening to Dylan recount the Kennedy assassination. I, I don't know what it was, but it, it felt somehow soothing, as though yeah. even as everything changes around us, Bob Dylan is still here and he's still doing what Bob Dylan does. I think his vocals on both these tracks are really, really fantastic. I mean, I've, you know, struggled with some of his more recent stuff. He's not released an album since Tempest in 2012. And Tempest was not my favorite. I haven't really enjoyed anything past John Wesley Harding as much as I did enjoy the early stuff. And I'm really, really impressed with how quiet and he's not pushing his voice. He's kind of, you know, it feels like a grandfather taking you on his knee and telling you a story. It's, it's, you know, he's always done these sort of conversational pieces, but it almost feels like he's relaxed into just being a storyteller now and not having to try so hard to be discursive and engaging and cause, you know, a conversation that upsets people. He's more at this point realizing he's wise and old and he's earned the ability just to tell a story without having to be this whole performative conversation. All right. We're going to just uh, jump the a little bit here forward. Too is, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Eric. Sorry. I was just going to say the, the humor, at least in, in yes. I can, and I contain multitudes. Yeah. It's very subtle, but it's there. That line about how he's got four guns and two knives on him. Yeah. It's just, you're like, what? <laughs> There's another great one, you greedy old wolf, I'll show you my heart, but not all of it, only the hateful part. I just cackled. <laughs> it's great. So apologies for speed dating through these songs, but uh, just to, we want to leave <laughs> quite a bit of time for a Fiona Apple if we can. Uh, Nora Jones has a new album coming out on June 12th. Uh, she has now released two singles from it. Uh, one of them is called I'm Alive. Uh, it contains the lines, you feel your soul get hollowed out while the world implodes. You just live without that's, I think we still don't think that that was written about this, but talk about uh, nailing it. Uh, we're going to listen to the other one, uh, a surprisingly peppy song given the title, which is How I Weep. around 
I'll start with you. I mean, I confess I haven't really kept up with Nora Jones in recent years, so I don't know whether this is some kind of creative leap for her or just a steady progression where she's headed. I loved both of these songs. Um, they sounded to me different from the Nora Jones that I remembered, and and God knows both of them feel very eloquent about the moment. Yeah, this strikes me more as an evolution, a continuation, more than a leap. Um, the thing that I like about the song we just heard, I like the, the music more than I like the vocals. It, it feels like there's a lot happening in the background. There's the, those pizzicato strings we heard, those kind of plucked strings right at the fade out. Um, vocally, lyrically, it doesn't do a ton for me. Uh, it doesn't, I, you know, I remember Nora Best for Come Away With Me, which was a really soothing album from 2002 um, that... I don't know. It, it was one of those records you could just put on and sort of melt into. And it feels like to me right now, if, if that's what Nora Jones did, I would be all for it. This is a great time to, to, to disappear into an album. I don't know that I'll be able to disappear into this one. Although, yeah, Rebecca, this one has, I guess it's uh, something metronomic, but it sounds like a ticking clock in the background, <laughs> which is not soothing and relaxing. And I think that's intentional. Yeah, I do too. And I actually really like this for Nora Jones. I mean, she, you know, her iconic voice is still very recognizable, but I don't know if I had heard the song without knowing. I think it would have taken me a minute to pick up that it actually was Nora Jones and not somebody just parroting, you know, her vocal style. I uh, would love to say I loved Come Away With Me, but when I was probably about 17, I went on a cross-country road trip with my friend's Polish family and her Polish father, who spoke no English, the for about, I don't know, 16 hours, only played Come Away With Me on a cassette tape. And I have never been able to listen to Nora Jones the same way again. So I really enjoyed this because it did feel like kind of a departure from the, you know, lounge singer that my 17-year-old associated with uh, Nora Jones. Right. So uh, we're also going to uh, just tuck in one that uh, Eric picked out for us. It's an artist that I'm not familiar with. His name is Peter Oren. Um, but let's just play a little bit of it and then maybe Eric can kind of familiarize us a little bit. As I scroll and scan Waiting for the page to load As my connection slows There's screens even in my dreams I'll bet they're in heaven waging anything There's screens even in my dreams What's there to say That ain't yet been tied Thumbs of butter knife. I skipped the essay expose for memes and videos of dogs doing human things. Who could have seen it? Who could have known you'd have Wi Fi and Bell All right, so Eric Danton, uh, tell us about Peter Oren or about this song or why you brought it to us. 
Yeah, Peter Oren, he's an Indiana singer and songwriter. His new album, The Greener Pasture, is out today. And uh, this song is kind of the centerpiece of that album. The, the theme of the album, in a lot of respects, is about our reliance on our phones as, as tools, um, and, but not necessarily for communication. And this song is very much about that. You know, right now, when everybody's locked in their houses, we rely more on our screens than we ever have, I think, before to, to stay in touch, to, to work, to, uh, you know, for recreation, whatever. His argument is that they are not necessarily bringing us closer together. They are emphasizing our apartness. And he wrote this, obviously, before any of what is going on now. He, he had no idea that this is the world that he would be releasing this album into. But it really seems to resonate. And, uh, you know, he's doing his own press for this album. And I emailed him and I said, you know, what do you think about this song, this theme in the context of what's happening now? And, and what he said was, you know, our reliance on technology is great if it's reliable for you and you are someone who can benefit from it. But not everybody can. And also we are putting ourselves even more at the mercy of these companies who give us this this product for quote unquote free, but then mine the data that we are hmm. willingly giving to them and selling it and it's being marketed back to us. So it's it's this critique and I think it feels more powerful given the current context than it might have without it. Yeah, presumably you'll have a follow-up album that's all about contact tracing, uh, which is gonna be even worse. <laughs> um, so yeah, Rebecca, real quick reaction to this. I wanna leave some time for you uh, to talk about Fiona, but anything you wanted to say about no, this No, I too? really enjoy it. I think it's really great for musicians to be tackling tech and talking about it. I mean, there's been a lot going on with the way tech has been controlled in the music industry and artists are having to buy back their own data a lot of the times. And I think to kind of grapple with that in you know a lyric form is fantastic i i'm excited to listen to the whole album all right so you know it is possible that bob dylan will end up having kind of the song people remember from at least this stretch of three or four or five months but it also seems quite possible that fiona fiona apple will have the album uh that people remember from this stretch of time it's called fetch the bolt cutters which is actually a reference to uh the uh, jillian anderson series the fall something she actually says um and uh it's uh, I, i'm going to just say off the top there's no way that we can convey this musically to you in the <laughs> tiny amount of time we have. This is something of a tour de force musically, uh, and every song has this incredible density to it. Uh, we'll play for you a little bit of uh, one of the more conventional songs, uh, at least in terms of its sound and structure uh, on the album. Uh, it's called Ladies. On the luminous effect and the parallax view and the figure eight, the foam and the revolving door that keeps turning out more and more good women like you. Yet another woman to whom I won't get through. My nation's on the luminous effect and the parallax view and the figure eight, the foam and the revolving door. Ladies, 
As I say, this is uh, one of the few songs that you could, as Randy Newman once said, maybe eat potato chips to, but uh, you'd miss a lot of the lyrics. This is a very polysyllabic album, a polyrhythmic album. It's experimental. And Rebecca, you know, I mean, I think Fiona Apple has seemed for a while, but especially now, to maybe be operating from the Brian Wilson slash D'Angelo playbook of a little bit of a hermit, a little bit of an isolated person who takes her time, uh, is in no rush to put out the new album. Uh, and when she does, it has that very, very startling quality that we might have associated with a Pet Sands or a Black Messiah. This this album is kind of a statement, but I'd love to get Get your overall reactions. Yeah, honestly, the more I've listened to this album, the more I think there are a lot of comparisons to what she's doing with her career and what Dylan's done with his career. She's very thoughtful, takes a lot of time between her albums. There's a lot of texture to the music. I think that she has kind of showed us another side, sort of like what Dylan has done with his different albums, each being a different turn of the mask. I think she's kind of taking this, you know, wild and free Fiona Apple we know and putting that persona into this cauldron of the post Me Too world and giving us this weirder, more challenging, you know, sound that not only makes you pay strict attention to what she's doing, but to what she's saying and how she's saying it. And I think for so long, people have kind of been caught up in Fiona Apple's reputation and, and some of the crazy stuff she did in her earlier career. And she's throwing all of that out with this album and, and forcing you really to pay attention to what she's saying. And a lot of what she's saying is really hard to listen to. I mean, she her songs deal with rape, her songs deal with the Kavanaugh hearing. I mean, she's really taking everything on and it's it's fantastic. I think it's a really necessary album for this moment. Right. And, you know, Eric, this really is an album that you shouldn't we shouldn't talk about after we've listened to it a few times. You're, people are going to have to listen to this 40 or 50 times probably uh, before they really kind of absorb it. But but what are your first inklings about it? I, I agree with Rebecca. It's it's such a, a huge statement album. Uh, there's so much happening musically. There's so much happening lyrically thematically uh there's you know all kinds of unspoken stuff about herself and her past and who she has been and who she wants to be now there was a really fascinating profile of her in the new yorker by emily nussbaum that went into a lot of that i mean she started the first glimmers of this album appeared in 2012 and she had been working on it ever since then what i am really curious about is how we would be receiving this album if she had released it some other time, if this if this yeah. had come out in February, say before the coronavirus thing, the pandemic became clear, or if she released it next spring, I'm I'm curious. I would love to, and we can't know obviously, but how would we talk about it that would be different? I think it would still be a massive statement. I think it would still be an album that I want to spend, you know, hours and hours and hours listening to and getting delving into and internalizing but i wonder how it would be received would it have gotten that 10.0 and pitchfork you know the first 10 perfect album review they've given in 10 years i don't know i don't know it's it's so it's hard to know whether it's circumstantial or contextual or or what well you i know, think it's fascinating rebecca i think you know that's certainly true lyrically i think at the level of music there's just no question. I mean, I was just sort of amazed by the composition and the musicianship here. You know, even if it had no important message, I think this would be yeah. pretty damn interesting music to listen to. Yep. I mean, it could be instrumental and it'd be interesting. She's got five different dogs credited on this album. <laughs> like, it's amazing. <laughs> She's, you know, using sound dolphin noises. 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think you could rename this whole album "I Contain Multitudes" and it would be a more fitting name for this album than Bob Dylan's song. I mean, it's, or or Pet Sounds, or Pet Sounds. I mean, no kidding. So yeah, no, I think sonically, it's definitely the most interesting thing I've heard in the last few years, if not the last decade. Easily. I I think it absolutely Easily. deserves all of the attention it's getting. I do think there is an argument to be made that the attention is born of the fact that we are desperate for something that explains the chaos of this moment, and what better than someone who's banging on. I think at one point she talked about she had the bones of one of her old dogs in a can and she was tapping on that to make sounds. I mean, just wild. It's great. All right. We're going to have to go out with the one more uh, cut from the album, I I Want You to Love Me, which is the first track. Uh, And we'll be back to talk about a very different kind of artist. (laughs) Or Or is he? Take a look at my wife and realize she's very plain But that's just perfect for an Amish like me You know I shun fancy things like electricity At 4.30 in the morning I'm milking cows Jebediah feeds the chickens and Jacob plows Fool and I've been milking and plowing so long that Even Ezekiel thinks that my mind is gone I'm a man of the land, I'm into discipline Got a Bible in my hand and a beard on my chin But if I finish all of my chores and you finish thine Then tonight we're gonna <laughs> I didn't want to fade because I was laughing uh, Alright, so that of course is Weird Al Yankovic uh, uh, With Amish Paradise Um, The occasion of this conversation is a really interesting profile by Sam Anderson, a terrific writer who's been on the show, actually, to talk about uh, The Good good Place. Uh, But uh, Weird Al Yankovic's comedy music speaks to the lonely child in all of us, says the title of the article. Uh, This is, I think, a different profile of Weird Al Yankovic in terms of who he is, in terms of who the writer is, in terms of who his fan base is. Uh, There are a lot of revelations in this. Uh, With us now are uh, two music writers. uh, Eric Danton is joining us from Madrid, Spain. Uh, Eric, uh, uh, very happy to have you back on the air with us. And Rebecca Castellani is uh, joining us from uh, environs much closer to our own. So, um, yeah, Eric, I guess I'll start with you. I don't know. There were a lot of revelations. I, maybe you knew more about all this than I did. Well, actually, decidedly, you knew more about this than I did. <laughs> was, was there anything that's really particular way this place this article went that surprised you? I was surprised, um, I guess I was surprised a bit at the writer's uh, revelations about himself as much as anything. I mean, I uh, when I was a, a kid, however old I was when Weird Al and 3D came out, I had that cassette and wore it out, you know, listening to, to Eat It and listening to uh, like a surgeon and, and those songs back then. So weird Al, I feel like weird Al has been part of my life, my music listening life for as long as I've been listening to music really. Um, and I've read a bunch about him over the years and I was lucky enough to see him in concert a few years ago in Northampton, which was a phenomenal experience. Um, 
And and I wasn't. I mean, there were details that the that were filled in. I didn't realize that his mother was quite as um, well. Norma I guess Batesy? suffocating is really the yeah, Norma, right? Yeah, you know, very controlling, uh, very limiting as to what sort of things he was allowed to do or see or talk about. Um, and you you get a sense of that in the story, even you know, or just his persona. He doesn't swear. He's very clean cut, wholesome guy. Um, and I was really heartened by all the people who said that he is exactly as nice as you hope he that he that he is, because the persona so often doesn't match the person. That it's so great when it does, especially yeah. for somebody like him who who brings this joy to so many people um, out of out of a sheer love of the absurdity of doing it. Right, Rebecca, yeah, we do get this picture of these uh, very overbearing parents. He's an only child. They had him late in life. I would like to say that's also a little bit of my life story, uh, kept on a very tight leash. Uh, we also get a picture of a guy who's really kind of painstaking about what he does. He doesn't toss these things off. Uh, he goes through a process of picking uh, of sort of just listing possibilities and rhymes that seems almost painstaking and, and I would find it numbing probably at a certain point. Uh, he's also described as a superb performer and excellent singer. Uh, his fans are surprising. Lin-Manuel Miranda might be the biggest uh, Al Yankovic fan in the world. I don't know. What, what grabbed you about this? Where did your uh, thoughts go? I mean, the whole piece grabbed me. I, I really, my interaction with Weird Al was really limited to uh, listening it, to it in the car with my younger brother when we would drive to school in the morning and specifically running with scissors. That was like the album that we would listen to all the time. And Weird Al in that weird way actually ended up exposing me to a lot of classic rock music. So I listened to The Saga Begins, which is set to American Pie about the episode one of the new reboot of Star Wars at the time. And that got me into Don McLean and American Pie got me into playing the guitar. So Weird Al is the reason I ever picked up the guitar in the first place. So he's got that nostalgia to it, but I hadn't realized what a musician he was, how uh, intense he was with his process. I mean, to hear Sam Anderson describe his computer and how you, you pick a song, any song, and it's got like Russian nesting dolls of folders down to a single rhyme and a single line. I mean, he is clearly meticulous. I was fascinated about how he got into the accordion and was learned how to play the entirety of Goodbye, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road on the accordion. I just thought it was a fantastic <laughs> article. It provided so much more depth and context for me for Weird, Weird Al that has always just kind of been a surface cultural touchstone that I've enjoyed and it's made me giggle. But to having read that piece and then going back and listening to it, it was making me emotional. It really, you know, hit on some nostalgia for my childhood, but also the relevance that he's man managed to maintain over the years. He's still bringing so much joy to so many people. He's still producing new music. I mean, he's had an incredible career. I just wasn't really aware of how deep it all went. It was a fantastic piece. It's completely changed my understanding of Weird Al and I, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm going to start listening to Weird Al more now. Well, you, according to you, you have been doing that today anyway. Yeah, right? I haven't stopped. And especially yeah. he did like a collaboration with Portugal the Man where they redid Feel It Still. And I legitimately think it's better than the original. So, I mean, he's still relevant as ever. Well, Lin-Manuel Miranda says that in the piece, too, that he sometimes likes the, the Weird Al versions better than he likes the originals. And Lin-Manuel Miranda is certainly a connoisseur of all kinds of popular music. Let's just hear uh, another clip here uh, before we get a little bit more from Eric. Uh, this is, well, I'm not going to tell you what it's a parody of. It's pretty obvious. I'm not even going to tell you what the song is called. Uh, Cat, just play B1. <laughs> 
should be obvious to us, but it isn't always, is you can't do this and do this well if you don't love the original material, if you don't have a really strong, you can't just make fun of a song. And one of the things that also emerges in this piece is that the artists who are being quote unquote parodied or lampooned uh, inevitably have signed off on it. Uh, Yankovic won't do it. Uh, if an artist isn't okay with it, we get this fascinating account of Kurt Cobain getting very excited <laughs> about smells like Nirvana. But, I love that. You know, but that was but, a great anecdote. Is it going to be about food? No, it's about how no one can understand your lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> and and the Cobain laughs hysterically at that. But but Eric, I think that is sort of the point. You have to love this stuff to do it as well as he does it. Yes, you do. You have to love it. You have to internalize it in a way, and you have to be really open-hearted about it, I think. Um, I seem to recall that there was some dust-up with Coolio after he did Amish Paradise. Um, Coolio and I don't would... remember exactly... What's that? Uh, Coolio would be unable to take the joke. <laughs> yeah, and, and clearly Coolio would have signed off on it, and probably Stevie Wonder, too, because that was based on a Stevie Wonder sample, I think. But um, that's what is so amazing about Weird Al and his longevity is... Over the past 40 plus years, I, well, not quite 40 years, I guess, but over whatever period of time, he has been into such a wide variety of music. I mean, he's he's spoofed Britney Spears. He spoofed Huey Lewis. He spoofed Madonna a couple times, um, Michael Jackson a couple times, Nirvana. He likes way more music than I do. You know, <laughs> I don't think that I, I, I'm not big-hearted enough about as much music as he is to be able to do what he does, to say nothing of the talent that it takes to do what he does as a lyricist and as a performer, too. You know, uh, Rebecca, there may be one part of this that might circle back to you and your brother in the car, too, which is that, you know, Sam Anderson is very, very confessional in this piece, talks about himself as kind of a lonely and misfit kid moved around to schools. And uh, and well, he gets pretty explicit about various problems that he had as a kid, but also talking, talking about how Weird Al winds up being this sort of safe haven, you know, this way in which, you know, here's this guy who is is just, you know, so exhibitionistically not cool, uh, yeah. but who is some somehow or other managed to create before the rise of the nerds, before the dominance of the nerds that we see now, this place that everybody else is completely welcomed into. Yeah, I think that they, Sam says at some point in the article, or he implies that Weird Al makes this music for his younger self, little Alfred, who was significantly younger than his peers. He was moved up, I think, three grades. So he was a underdeveloped young kid with a bunch of older kids getting picked on. 
And I think everyone can relate to that to some extent. And the fact that he, I, I first of all, love any story where somebody reclaims a nickname that a frat boy or a terrible teenager gave to them. So the fact that he was teased as being Weird Al in college and then has turned this into this iconic multi-million dollar career, it just makes my heart happy. But I, right. I do think that he writes for himself as a kid. He can imagine still what it's like being in his bedroom. He wasn't allowed to leave and he had to listen to you know, his parody radio station under the covers of afraid that his mother was going to take it away from him. I think we can all remember how that felt. And the fact that he continues, despite the fact that he's, you know, a grown man with an enormous amount of success, that he hasn't forgotten that. He continues to write for that person. I think it's wonderful. We need more artists like that. I'm he getting seems an update very here. low ego. I'm getting an update here that Coolio's record label gave Weird Al permission to do the song and then Coolio didn't. Uh, and that's where that happened classic mix-up yeah people who turned him down <laughs> include prince jimmy page and led zeppelin paul mccartney eminem uh, james blunt or james blunt's label oh come on james blunt <laughs> well i mean eric we, ha we have to sort of wrap this up here himself. but but it's also a mistake to turn him down um yeah it was the label actually it's, I'm, I'm being told james blunt was okay with it you too i was gonna we, say i once interviewed james blunt weird al did a james blunt parody called you're pitiful yeah. And uh, I once, I once interviewed James Blunt and asked him about it, and he said he loved it. He thought it was fantastic. Yeah, and I think that form of flattery, if right. Weird Al covers you. Well, I think absolutely, Eric. At this point, it's kind of a badge of honor, too. You know, I mean, if you've got a, a Weird Al Yankovic uh, parody, that means in, in in yet another sense, you have arrived. Yeah, and you know what? I think that has been true for gosh, twenty five years, probably since Smells Like Nirvana. You know, in the eighties, it was weird. It, you know, Weird Al was weird. It was like this, this, uh, the annoying little brother running after you and repeating back what you just said. <laughs> All right. But so, in a really clever, creative way. Yeah. And then in the 90s and beyond, he became, it became the badge of pride. It became like, oh, well, if Weird Al wants to cover me, I must have made it. Um, we're going to take a break here, so I'll have time to make some recommendations on the other side. Uh, I don't know what Eric's planning to recommend, but I also want him to recommend an essay in Pitchfork that we didn't get to, but I think is really important. Uh, so let's uh, take that break, and we will be back. It bubbles all the time like a giant carbonated soda. S-O-D-A soda. I saw the little rent sitting there on a log. I asked him his name, and in a raspy voice, he said, yo. All right, we're back. I have to say some quick thank yous uh, and dole out uh, some very well-deserved credit. Kat Pastor is in the studio. She is making everything happen, and she makes it possible for me to be doing the show remotely. Jonathan McNichol is also producing remotely. So I thanks to Jonathan for pulling all this music together and these guests, and thanks to Kat for what she does every single day for this show. Uh, there's no way to repay that debt. All right, uh, let's make some recommendations. Uh, Rebecca Castellani, why don't you go first? Okay, so uh, on the line of music, I am one of those people that can't really listen to lyric-driven music when I am working, so I tend to listen to a lot of scores and classical pieces, so I figured, because a lot of people are working from home right now, I'd share some of my current instrumental favorites that I've been listening to. Um, I'm at a big rock Monanoff kick right now, especially the piano concertos. Nobody delivers better dramatic highs than rock Monanoff, so highly recommend, especially piano concerto number three is my personal favorite. And in a different vein to that, I just started listening to Max Richter, who was the composer of the Leftovers soundtrack, which is a beautiful, beautiful soundtrack. But he actually did this project a couple of years ago called Reimagining Vivaldi, where he reworked the four seasons and 
cut different parts of it, change different parts of it. And it's a really, really interesting piece of music. Uh, it's, it's a little, the first time you listen to it, it might be hard if you really enjoy the Four Seasons, but he does fantastic work. So Rachmaninoff and Max Richter for my music recommendations. And then on the other side of things, I have, I recently got a Hulu subscription because there's not much else to do, but binge watch these days. And I started revisiting the early seasons of ER, specifically the ones with George Clooney and Juliana Margulies. And let me tell you, it holds up. It is absolutely a completely different type of medical drama than anything you've seen in recent television. There's none of this like sexy blue lighting, none of these ridiculous soapy driven plot lines. It is like as pared back. It looks like a hospital. They're using all of this medical term and it's really, really good. So early seasons of ER, I'm thinking like seasons one through six, really good place to start if you haven't dipped your toes into the beautiful world of ER. All right. Jonathan McPants wants me to say that uh, Max Richter also did the score of Ed Asner, the excellent uh, Brad Pitt Outer Space movie. I haven't seen that yet. Oh, uh, don't. He's uh, great. You can just probably skip that one. Um, and uh, <laughs> also, we have a James Blunt update, which is another oh, James Blunt update, Eric. So it's not, uh, the James Blunt song, uh, parody is not on any Al, Big Al, uh, we, uh, excuse me, Weird Al uh, album because, in fact, the label did block it. They pulled permission. But James Blunt oh. plays it live and. Uh, Oh no way! Or something. I don't know. There's, there's, there's more details. It's not James Plunt's fault. That's He's the got thing a great I sense of humor, home. so I would have been surprised to hear it was his fault. He's right. constantly making fun of his own I, stuff. I guess, I, I guess Big Al does it live and does it on his MySpace or whatever. But anyway, Eric, make some recommendations. Weird Al. Weird Al. I'm, sure. I'm over to Big Al Anderson now. You can tell I'm getting tired. Of <laughs> I don't know that Big Al and Weird Al are acquainted, but that would be cool. Uh, they should be. Uh, one of the make the collaboration the happen. <laughs> One of the things that I've been listening to, um, especially in the earliest parts of the pandemic, the first couple of weeks here in Madrid that we were locked down were legitimately scary. Um, there, it was very tense. Uh, we're only allowed out to go food shopping and to, to the pharmacy, basically. And, and going outside would induce basically an immediate tension headache and, and really get your heart rate up. Um, and so I found solace on Twitter of all places, um, the songwriter Joe Pernice of the Pernice Brothers um, did a project he called Barely Manilow, where he was covering Barry Manilow songs, solo acoustic, nylon string guitar, uh, shooting video of himself playing these songs in his house. And they're so calming and so uh, soothing. He did um, a version of Mandy. He did Weekend in New England. Looks like we made it and a few others. Uh, and they were just really like a tonic and you get to hear these really great melodies. They're really tightly written songs. And, you know, Pernice is one of the Pernice brothers, this indie pop band, um, originally from Northampton. He now lives in Toronto with his family. Uh, I love his songwriting. I love his singing. And to hear him do these really stripped down, simple takes of what were very produced, arranged songs, mostly from the seventies, I don't know, really struck me the right way. All right. So uh, we're almost out of time. I also want to say that Eric sent us to a really interesting essay in Pitchfork uh, about how you should listen to new music uh, and uh, let it challenge you because we we tend to be very comforted by old music. I'm right now doing the Facebook challenge where you come up with the 20 albums that made you who you are today. But that means kind of living through one's own life story through the music of the past. But the music of the present is very important. It was a terrific essay. I'm so glad he directed it, uh, to uh, us to it. Meanwhile, 
I have to uh, endorse uh, watching Keith Urban do the song Higher Love uh, at that all-star celebrity thing that uh, happened last weekend. He splits himself into three clones. It's, first of all, an interesting choice, the Steve Winwood song uh, Higher Love, uh, and he splits himself into three clones and plays different parts and sings different parts, and Nicole Kidman walks in uh, near the end because, you know, you got to see Nicole Kidman, right? Uh, and it's a terrific version, and it's um, a very interesting effect that he does. He also has a terrific new single out called Polaroid. Polaroid. So uh, I, I'm just kind of discovering how much I like Keith Urban. Uh, also, Phoebe Bridgers has two new songs out. I think when yes. Phoebe Bridgers, yeah. I mean, she's such a new artist, and she's so exciting and so interesting, and this could get lost in all the shuffle of the craziness that's going on. But Kyoto and Garden Song, they're both good. Awesome. Uh, put them on your coronavirus playlist or someplace even better than that. Uh, and thank you so much to uh, Eric Dant, who joined us from Madrid for this. Rebecca Castellani, uh, one of the stalwarts of the nose. Thanks to all of you who've listened. Have a really safe weekend uh, and find something that you'll really enjoy. Listen to some great music. Listen to some Rachmaninoff or some Phoebe Bridgers or some Weird Al. Or some Al Weird Al. Yeah. Or some Weird Al. <laughs> Talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon. I already said that one. Avon, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah.